thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome to The Real Food Real. Today on the show we have Dr. Joseph Pizzorno, one of the world's leading authorities on science-based natural and integrative medicine. He is a naturopathic physician, educator and researcher and is in Australia this month to speak at the third Bioceuticals Research Symposium which is titled Interrelated Drivers of Health and Disease. According to Dr. Pizzorno, toxic load in modern civilization is even more important than nutritional deficiencies in terms of causing disease. Research indicates that environmental toxins increase the chance of developing most chronic diseases, such as type 2 diabetes. And people in the top 10% of toxic exposure can have a 20-fold increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Dr. Pizzono and I will dive in deep here today, so sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, Doctor, and thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for the invitation to speak with you today. Great. Let's dive straight in and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, I've been involved in medicine for now almost half a century. I'm uh, licensed in the United States as a naturopathic physician in the state of Washington. And we're a little bit different in the United States than in Australia, and that is naturopathic doctors are physicians in the U.S., uh, whereas in Australia, they're more practitioner level. So what that means is that we have uh, quite a bit more education. We also have more responsibility for our patients, both diagnosis and treatment of disease. Right, okay. And so tell us about where your career has gone in recent years. Okay. So I practiced as a naturopathic doctor starting in 1975 after going to through naturopathic medical school. And then in 1978, I founded Bastyr University, with the intent of creating uh, an accredited institution to teach naturopathic medicine and to do research. And so that became the first accredited University of Natural Medicine anywhere in, in, the, in the world. So I did that for about 22 years and then got tired of being college president and got more interested in doing education and lectures and research. So since then, I've written or co-authored uh, 10 books. I've been appointed to two prestigious uh, commissions by Presidents Clinton and President Bush, and I've been very, very active in the journal world. I'm the editor-in-chief of Integrated Medicine and Clinician's Journal, which is the most widely distributed peer-reviewed journal in the field. So I'm very, very involved in looking at research, uh, teaching doctors about what the research says, and then seeing patients and applying this, this body of knowledge. Yeah, you've certainly been in the industry for a long time, so it's great that you're able to share your knowledge with us today. So how did you get more into looking at toxic load and the research and work that you do with patients in that regards? Yes. Well, that's, that's actually very interesting. So when I was first seeing patients back in the late 70s, they were typically sick because of nutritional deficiencies or excesses. And if they had toxicity, it was almost always industrial toxicity or what I call toxins of choice, like too much alcohol. But since then, there's been just a dramatic change in why people are sick. And what's happening is that we're seeing a, an epidemic of diseases like, for example, diabetes. Now, using U.S. data and using the same diagnostic criteria, 
for the last 50 years, the incidence of diabetes went from 1% of the population to now 8% of the population using the older criteria, using more current criteria now to over 20% of the population in the U.S. And so the question is, well, what happened? Our genetics didn't change, and yes, people eat sugar, but they're actually not eating that much more sugar than they were 50 years ago. What happened? And what's happened is we have a much, much bigger load of, of chemical toxins in our bodies. These chemical toxins are called persistent organic pollutants. And they're called persistent because they were intentionally designed by the scientists to make them difficult to break down and to have specific uh, characteristics they wanted to, to be used in industry and in the environment. So it turns out a lot of these, we'll call them POPs for short, say persistent organic pollutants is a tongue tire. These POPs, um, turns out many of them are what are called insulin receptor site poisons. So what's happening is that when a person has high chemical exposure, these chemicals bind to the insulin receptor sites on their cell walls. Now, since the cell walls receptor sites are being bound, they no longer can respond to insulin as well as they should. And so what happens is that the pancreas has to put out more and more and more insulin to get the cells to take in sugar. Well, over time, it takes about 10 to 20 years, the pancreas gets worn out. They can't keep producing that much insulin. And so as insulin levels start dropping because the body can't produce insulin enough, uh, the blood sugar level starts going up, and then with the diagnosis of diabetes. So it turns out that if you look at people in the top chemical exposure, those are about, about the top 10% of chemical exposure, they have about a 20-fold increased risk for diabetes because these pops are poisoned to insulin receptor sites. Yeah, it's pretty mind-blowing, is it? And I think that it's certainly a very interesting area of research, but potentially not enough has been, you know, provided to those that are interested and certainly to the general population. Do you see that as your role to spread this message? Yes. <laughs> Good observation. So here, you know, here in Australia, you might say, well, I just quoted you US data. You know, that, that's, what does that mean for Australia? Well, if you look at the instance of diabetes in Australia, uh, over the last 10 to 15 years, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm sorry, over the last 20 years, it's tripled. So while Australia isn't quite as bad as U.S., you're on the same pathway. And when I started looking at chemical exposure in Australians, in some areas you're doing better than we are in the U.S., you have less chemicals, but in other areas you're just as bad as the U.S. Now, one example will be, I was talking about food, but another example would be the flame-retardant chemicals we put into clothing to make it less flammable. Well, these things are called PDBEs, and they are endocrine disruptors. And you folks in Florida, and you folks in Australia, when you look at blood levels, blood levels, you have the same levels of these in your in your blood and in your fat as we have in the U.S. So clearly, uh, you're being exposed to chemicals as well. So you're kind of like on the same pathway as we are, just sort of a little behind us. Yeah, right. So that was one of my next questions: as to where are these environmental toxins most found in Australia? So the, the the sources are first off food. Food is the primary source. Um, and now in the U.S., there's about eighty percent of the chemical exposure is from food. I think the number is lower in Australia. I would say close to sixty percent of the chemical load comes from food, but the data is not as clear. The second big source, which I think may come as a surprise to people, and that's health and beauty aids. So the health and beauty aids, uh, you know, smell nice. They have fragrances. Well, these fragrances are basically what are called phthalates. Now, technically not quite. The, the phthalates aren't themselves fragrances, rather the fragrances are dissolved into phthalates and now phthalates are then put into, into cosmetics. So these phthalates are uh, endocrine disruptors. And it turns out that about 20 to 30% of the chemical load in a person 
comes from these portions and lotions we lather on ourselves. So, for example, you want to look at the phthalate levels in a, here's the study I'll quote you. Phthalate levels uh, were done in a group of young men. Uh, they tested the phthalate levels without uh, using any health and beauty aids whatsoever, and they had very low phthalate levels. Then they put, had them use lotion, then they had them use hair gel, then they had them use antiperspirants, and they had them use, um, uh, what's it, uh, gargle uh, mouthwash. Anyway, by the time they had a person using all the typical health and beauty aids that you see, see in adults today, their levels of phthalates were 400 times higher. So you may say, well, what does that mean? Well, phthalates are testosterone blocking sites. So here, this, here you have this young man who's afraid he's not smelling so nice and wants to put all these nice pre-smelling chemicals on himself to make himself more attractive to the members of the opposite sex. And it turns out the more of these things he uses, the less sexy he is fundamentally because the testosterone doesn't work anymore. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy to think that for years we've just been putting products on our skin and face and down our throats that are essentially giving us hormonal disruption. Yes, yes. And so I'm not saying don't use these things. What I'm saying is choose those products which have lower levels. And unfortunately, regulation does not require the manufacturers to put on the labels what's actually all these things that are in them. Yeah. So you need to be you need to be a really good at sleuthing what are the right products to use. Yeah, I've actually started a series on my blog titled How I Went Chemical Free. So oh. I'm starting to share with my audience what changes I've made over the years and certainly specific products that I now use. So I'll be able to help in that regard. Great, that's um, very smart. That's great. <laughs> but I'd love for you to share with us um, what your message is about environmental toxins, the POPs that you mentioned, and disease. So when we start looking at disease correlations, there are very, very strong correlations between uh, these, these uh, POPs and also the toxic metals and disease. And frankly, I think we're seeing just the tip of the iceberg. One of the problems why this has, been not, has not been recognized earlier is that when you look at individual chemicals, the disease correlations are not very good. The reason they're not very good is because these have what are called nonlinear dose-response relationships. Now, if you look at something like mercury or lead, you know, the more mercury and lead you have, the worse it is. It's very, very easy to make this correlation. And there's a lot of research there. But with a lot of these chemicals, sometimes at low dosages, they're, they're bad for us. But at medium dosages, there's not much disease correlation. And at high doses, they're bad for us again. And so since we have a nonlinear relationship, when researchers were first looking at these things, they weren't seeing the typical relationship, so they didn't think they were a problem. But now researchers have become more sophisticated, recognizing that uh, varying dosages uh, has a big impact. The bigger message here that I want to put in, put out to people, is that it's not so much the individual toxin you're exposed to, except for the metals, we're talking about chemicals here, rather it's the total body burden of the chemicals. And when we look at total body burden of chemicals, you then get very, very strong disease correlations. So there's two things to learn from this. Number one is just we need to decrease our exposure to chemicals as much as we can. The second thing is we want to increase our body's ability to get rid of those chemicals. Because as you might expect, our bodies have remarkable detoxification mechanisms. And so if we help them work properly, then we can get rid of these chemicals more effectively. Unfortunately, modern lifestyle has impaired the ability of our uh, body to get rid of chemicals. And there's two areas that where that's a problem. Number one is basically vitamins and minerals. You need enough vitamins and minerals so the enzymes in the detoxification system will work the way they're supposed to. And unfortunately, most diets are deficient in vitamins and minerals. 
not only because people choose foods that are low in nutrients, like thinking of a lot of sugar or a lot of fat, but also because of the way we have grown our foods now, we have depleted the minerals in the soil, so foods have less minerals now than they did 50 years ago. Yeah. I, I once said looking at minerals in vegetables, and just one nutrient, copper, copper is 78% lower in vegetables now compared to 50 years ago. The second area of importance is fiber. Because most of these chemicals are detoxified in the liver, and the liver dumps them out in the bile, and it goes into the gut, we're supposed to bind to fiber, and they go out through our stools. Um, unfortunately, as we evolved as a species, we were consuming between 100 and 150 grams of fiber a day, so there's a lot of fiber in our gut, and it's easy for the body to get rid of the chemicals once it got into the gut. Unfortunately, if you look at uh, Australian data, the typical Australian consumes 15 to 20 grams of fiber a day. So what happens is, after the body excretes chemicals, they get reabsorbed through a process called intrahepatic recirculation, and so we reabsorb these chemicals that we're trying to excrete. So another very important strategy is to have people consume more fiber, and that will help the body's mechanisms work as well. Right, so you're just saying that a well-rounded, nutrient-dense approach to your food and good quality fiber helps your liver eliminate these toxins. Exactly. Beautiful. And then if you want to become more, uh, more aggressive, there's one nutrient which is actually surprisingly effective, and that is a supplement called N-acetylcysteine. So NAC for short uh, does two things that are very important. Number one is it actually binds to methylmercury in the body. That's the kind of mercury you get from fish, for example, and helps excrete it out through the urine. But also increases the production of a very important molecule in the body called glutathione. So glutathione does, does two things which are critical for chemical load. Number one is acts as an antioxidant in the in the body in the cells to protect the cells from oxidant damage from these chemicals. But the second thing it does is to keep um, molecule in the liver. The liver binds process of conjugation. The liver binds glutathione to the chemicals in the liver, and that's what's then dumped into the bile and into the gut to get it out of the body. Yeah, I love NAC. I've got a number of clients doing a specialized liver cleanse at the moment, and NAC is a big part of that. So I think it's good. Your dosage is actually quite low, but it's very effective, so it's a great supplement. Yes. There's a difference between treating a patient one-on-one and giving advice to people over in general. Yeah. So I could recommend to people 500 milligrams twice a day of NAC, and that's going to be safe for virtually everybody. Mm. Yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Being mindful of what we say over a podcast, right? <laughs> exactly. All right. So I do want to dive in a little bit deeper to the liver side of the coin because we know that the environmental toxins and certainly the POPs can lead to quite um, a change in liver function and that obviously has some pretty serious downstream health effects. Yes. Can you tell us more about that, please? So I think there's a couple of things to look at here. One is the load it puts on the on the liver, as well as things we can do to help the liver work better. So I'll go back to glutathione. So it turns out that the more toxins a person is exposed to, the more they deplete the glutathione stores. So for example, if you have a person who's drinking a lot of alcohol and being exposed to chemical toxins, you now dramatically increase the load on the liver. But not only that, you now are depleting glutathione. And as glutathione is depleted, you now get more damage. So now the body tries to protect itself, and there's an enzyme in the in the liver called uh, GTTP. And what this enzyme does, which is quite interesting, is that it increases recirculation of glutathione. 
So azaglutathione is being used to detoxify chemicals. As the body dumps the chemicals into the gut, it also, wherever it can, kind of tries to pull back the glutathione so you keep, keep using it. Now, the, if you look at then at people with chemical exposure, it turns out that an indirect measure of chemical exposure, and also heavy metals, by the way, is uh, uh, GTT levels, GTTP or GTT, depending on the laboratory. So within the normal range, most, most laboratories are 10 to 60 units per liter. Within the normal range, GTT goes up in proportion to chemical exposure for the 90% of the population that has the right genetics. About 10% of the population's genetics do not allow them to increase glutathione production in response to chemical toxins. And in general, they're the ones who can be even more, more damaged by these chemicals than others. So you can then look at how much load a person has by checking on the, uh, the GTT levels. And in general, as GTT goes up, you not only have, it not only is an indication of increased toxin exposure, but it's also now a very good predictor of disease risk. So looking at GTT again, normal range is 10 to 60. A GTT of 40 to 60 is associated with a 20-fold increased risk of diabetes. In other words, it's telling us high GTT, normal range, it's telling us so much chemical exposure, increased risk for diabetes. Right. So what about more short-term? Like, obviously, diabetes is something that everybody wants to prevent, but what about the short-term effects? Like, maybe something that someone's experiencing. Ah, okay. So um, one of the challenges with many toxins is that they, over time, progressively damage how, how the body functions. And that will depend upon the kind of toxin. So early on, what you may notice is just less energy, being more tired, more fatigue, uh, because these things also damage the mitochondria in the, in the, in the cells, so the mitochondria can't produce as much ATP for energy production. They might say, might notice yourself getting forgetful, or you might notice your attention span is decreased. You might say, well, I'm just tired today, or, well, I'm getting older. Well, well, that's true. Those kinds of, those two may indeed be associated with impaired mental function. But it turns out that these things are neurotoxins. So this laboratory, there's some tests being done now. There's an online test. I'm, I'm not going to say the name yet because I haven't tested it properly. There's actually a test you can do to determine drop in mental function associated with chemical load. So a lot of these things people take for granted day to day as well. It's aging. It's, I'm, you know, I'm more tired, I'm stressed out, etc. Often those are actually your early warning signs. You have a toxic overload. Right. Okay. I've never actually considered that. We look more at, say, liver enzyme function and how that has an impact on hormone metabolism, which I want to discuss with you in a second. Um, but I did want to just jump back to clarify um, potential areas where we're maybe not aware of the toxins or the POP. So we've discussed food and beauty products. Certainly you mentioned clothing. Can you tell us more about the heavy metals and any other things we need to be mindful of? Uh, yes. So the, the heavy metals come from several sources. Uh, let's start with mercury. So with mercury, the primary source for most people are silver fillings. So these so-called silver fillings are actually 55% mercury. So you can actually you can actually predict the amount of mercury in a person's body and in their brain by counting the number of fillings in their mouth. So silver fillings are bad for us. They, they leak mercury out. Another source of mercury, of course, is they're going to be large fish. So the bigger the fish, the more they concentrate the mercury. Now, I'm not saying don't eat fish, but if you eat fish, try the smaller-sized fish and those which are lower 
uh, which, which are also high in omega-3 fatty acids. Now for lead, uh, in the past the primary source of lead has been leaded gasoline. And the good news is that we're now, um, we've stopped putting lead in gasoline, so the amount of lead in people's bodies has actually decreased quite significantly, which is a good, pub good public health measure. The, at this point, most people are going to get lead from uh, things like paint and such. Uh, and older paints, particularly white paint, used lead as the coloring agent. And so whenever you, you're trying to get rid of old paint, sanding it or whatever, you're releasing lead into the environment. The other one which is particularly important is cadmium. Now, in general, about half the cadmium comes from cigarette smoking and half comes from diet. But now there's a big new study that just came out which was looking at uh, perimenopausal women and was noticing a surprisingly high level of cadmium in these perimenopausal women and they did some research and found out that they're eating a lot of soy because soy is being recommended for them for the perimenopausal symptoms. The soy they were eating was made from soybeans that were grown with synthetic fertilizers. Synthetic fertilizers typically have high levels of cadmium and so what they found in these women was that while their symptoms of many menopause were being decreased by the consumption of soy, we actually increased the risk of osteoporosis. About 20% of osteoporosis is due to high cadmium levels, and we also were doubling the risk of a heart attack because cadmium also is very damaging to the heart. Yeah, that's absolutely insane. I think that those three that you mentioned, mercury, lead, and cadmium, are certainly the heavy metals that can be really toxic. Um, earlier on, you mentioned about copper. We know that copper is a Goldilocks scenario, so we certainly need the right amount of copper, but not in excess. Have you seen any um, scenarios of excess copper in relation to organic pollutants? Well, I, I haven't, but I did actually saw one patient in clinical practice, boy, 30 years ago, with copper toxicity. Mm. So it's, a, it's not it's not common. And she was unusual in that uh, she got her copper from being an avid swimmer. I was so just about was, to say that because I yes. deal with triathletes and ah. I see really high levels of copper from all the chlorine. Yes, yes. for some reason, the, how the chlorine is used uh, has high copper levels. And she actually had toxicity from the copper. And so I had to have her stop swimming, which she hated, but she was willing to go to bicycling, which was much, much healthier for her. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that point, though, comes back to the overall load. Like, you may not necessarily have to stop swimming, but it's about bringing yourself down from the ceiling with the overall toxins or pollutants right. that you are exposed to on a daily basis. Right. And that kind of person, of course, needs more zinc to help balance out the Absolutely. So you have to get the back Yeah, very good point. So let's dive in deeper to the area of, of hormones. You mentioned okay. before about the impact on testosterone, but can you dive in deeper there about toxins, liver health, and certainly the effect on hormone function and metabolism for me? Uh, yes. So the one with, with the most obvious and most immediate uh, response is actually thyroid. Mm. So it turns out that the uh, thyroid, the enzymes that um, not only produce thyroid, but which is T4 and is produced in, this, in the thyroid gland, but also more active form, as you know, is T3, which is actually produced in the cells. So the enzymes called diadenases that convert T4 to T3 uh, are very dependent upon nutrition, but they're also very susceptible to environmental toxins. So when looking at uh, cadmium and mercury in particular, they poison the enzymes that convert T4 to T3. So if you have a person who's feeling kind of chronically tired, 
Uh, the doctor measures the amount of thyroid hormone. And typically measures my thyroid in the, in the blood. And they say, oh, your T4 is fine. Well, T4 in the, in the blood might be fine, but the T3 in the cells uh, can often be very low. So there's several of the persistent organic pollutants pops that poison these enzymes, but they're really sensitive to these metals. So it turns out a person who has a diet that's particularly high in selenium, for example, will be more protected from the uh, cadmium and the mercury than a person with a diet that's low in selenium. So then you say, well, how do you determine if your diet has enough selenium in it or not? Well, a person eating conventionally grown foods consumes about four times as much selenium as a person eating uh, sorry, a person eating organically grown foods has about four times as much selenium in the diet as a person eating conventionally grown foods. Because conventionally grown foods are depleted of the nutrients. So here you have a situation of conventionally grown foods are low in, low in minerals, they're also higher in, chemical, in metal toxins, as well as chemical toxins, and you have a big problem. Yeah, okay. So then the thyroid function changes, and we obviously know that thyroid is the center of our metabolism, and it certainly has a, a large role of, in the energy metabolism. What other side effects do you see of that? Uh, well, if you side effects of low thyroid? Or yeah, or dysfunction from oh. the pops. Okay, just one thing to realize that uh, the, the key factor with thyroid is it tells the mitochondria how much ATP to produce. So if you have no thyroid function whatsoever, your, your mitochondria produce only 40% as much ATP. Whereas if you're hyperthyroid and you're overstimulating the mitochondria, you actually can double the amount of ATP produced by mitochondria. Which is one reason why some weight loss programs used to give people thyroid hormones so they get their ATP production higher so they burn up calories more quickly. So the other areas, of course, we look at testosterone and estrogen. Uh, and it turns out that many of these um, chemical toxins are estrogen mimetics. So they, what they do is they mimic the effects of estrogen in the body. So we're getting kind of estrogenification of the whole population. They also block testosterone sites, so we're also starting to see decreased testosterone um, activity uh, in, the, in the population. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. It's certainly an area we explore for um, hormonal changes or particularly fat loss resistance in women because we know that the estrogen mimics can really affect that fat metabolism. Yes, and also uh, these toxins storing the fat, so when the person starts losing weight, more toxins are released, they feel bad from these toxins because they also induce things like cytokine production. So cytokines are inflammatory chemicals. And when you get when you have a flu, you know, a viral infection, you're feeling really sick and tired and achy. Well, those are from cytokines. So what's happening is when you start losing weight, you feel more tired and achy because all those chemicals being released to increase production of cytokines, which makes it even harder to lose weight. Yeah, it's a bit of a vicious cycle there, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. So I feel like there's so much information in there, but I, I want to keep it practical so that we can have a look at what um, our listeners might need to do if they're identifying with some of the symptoms or if they're interested in exploring their own toxic load. What would you do for testing or for a, a client that came to see you with this goal in mind? So uh, what I recommend, one is get the liver test done to the GTT. And the reason I like that one is because it's readily available, costs like $8. It's a cheap test, it's a readily available test that's used primarily for detecting hepatitis, which is it's in the hundreds. So we want to look at the GDTP. And if it's over 30, uh, then the person has chemical toxicity. 
for metals, it's more difficult. You can do hair testing, which is okay, but unfortunately some people have heavy metals, but they don't get it off through the hair. The current standard is considered blood levels, but the blood levels only tells you acute, acute levels. So I prefer what's called challenge testing. So our person do a first morning urine, which tells us their acute exposure. Then we give them test molecules called DNPS and DMSA, and take those test molecules, and then collect their urine for six hours. That then tells us that their body load of uh, lead, mercury, and ketamine. Okay, right. And so this would be a common scenario for you with um, with your clients or patients, and and then you then you put them on a uh, an approach to reduce their toxic load. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So it depends on you know if it's a chemical toxin or is it a metal toxin. It's a different strategy. So for metal toxins, I use natural chelating agents to slowly over time get the chemical get the metals out. And for the chemicals, um, I primarily use NAC plus fiber. Beautiful. Now, if it's really high, you may you may find the strength of nature method doctors suggest this, but you have these potato chips made out of these um, uh, kind of fat re- removing chemicals like luster and such, Pringles and things like that. So it turns out those things actually help get the chemicals out of the body. Not that they're good foods, in my opinion, okay, but they actually help get toxin, chemical toxins out of the body. That's really interesting. Yes. <laughs> I think I prefer to try NAC or fiber first, but yes, yes, obviously yes. in extreme cases. <laughs> awesome. So let's get practical for our listeners today. What are your top three strategies on how we can reduce our toxic or chemical load in Australia? Eat organically grown foods. Uh, eat fish that are small with high omega-3 fatty acids and inc- increase fiber in your diet. Beautiful. Nice and simple, really. All of us on a real food approach should be pretty close to that. Um, and as I said, I've put together that series with more information around the other products that we need to be mindful of. Right. Right. Very good. Now, so we have dived into a lot of the important areas, but was there anything else that you wanted to touch on in terms of what your message is, or maybe go back to the conversation around type 2 diabetes? So, uh, well, let's just finish this off by talking about pregnant women. Okay. okay? Then I have to get back to my conference. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, this, is, this is scary data, but I think uh, women need to be aware of this. If you look at pregnant women in the top 20% of chemical exposure, compare them to pregnant women in the bottom 20% of chemical exposure, and then look at the IQ of the children, find the women in the top chemical exposure, their children have a seven-point drop in IQ. Now, this after you calculate out all the you know, socioeconomic things, so it's you know, apples to apples. And not only do they have a drop in IQ, they have a doubling of ADHD, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So if you want to have smarter, healthier, better-behaving children, you need to get the chemicals out of your body before you get pregnant. Yeah, that makes very good sense. And I think certainly everyone needs to start thinking about their toxic exposure and certainly some simple strategies that they can implement to uh, improve their overall health and reduce their disease risk. So thanks so much for sharing your message. I won't keep you much longer because I know you're off to the conference in Sydney. Can you just direct our listeners to where they can find you for more information? Uh, I have a website. It's... uh drpizorno.com, D-R-P-I-Z-Z-O-R-N-O.com, which I better update. (laughs) (laughs) We might give you a few weeks to do that, but the show will... (laughs) But we'll pop all the links in the show notes, all right? Thanks so much for your time, Joseph. It was great to speak with you. You as well. Take care. 
This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.